this technology of the airship title is a little bit pretentious, I suppose. Uh, what I want really talking, I hope, not too technical terms, about how an airship works, and I shall be speaking mainly about the historical concept of the airship. Um, there was a bit of a hiccup in the arrangements here, and I expected uh, up to Monday this week to be talking a week today, um, and if you come in just before six, you'd have found me just writing the last of my notes in the lobby there. I feel rather like the late Richard Brinsley Sheridan, who on one occasion found himself writing the last act of a play when the first act was already on the stage. Um, fortunately, most of my material in the form of slides was ready, but it does mean that uh, there are certain aspects which I shall not be covering, which I would like to include, uh, mainly work on propulsion, on ground handling, and on modern projects and application of technology in the modern field. Um, what I do want to do is talk first of all about static lift, and balloons, and then look at the problems we have in trying to push a balloon sideways to make an airship. Firstly the aerodynamic problems and then the structural ones. And this I think will keep us going for quite long enough. Well if we can start with the first slide, this is Archimedes. Um, Archimedes, you recall, said that when a body is immersed in water the loss in weight is proportional to the weight of water displaced. This applies in all fluids. And on the left there we have a solid body. Uh, the upthrust is the density of the fluid times the displaced volume. And the body weight I've called W0. So the net lift will be the difference between the two. Well this is of no interest to us whatever. But if we have a hollow body containing a second fluid of density rho 1 there then the total weight of the thing, the original W0, becomes W plus the internal density times the volume, assuming that the wall is thin, so the volume of the wall itself is negligible. And then you can show that the lift has the expression in the box up there. The gross lift is the volume times the difference between the inside and outside densities. And the net lift, of course, is that less the weight of the container. Now, armed with this magic formula, we can deal with all kinds of systems. I'm assuming in this picture that all these things are in equilibrium, so that the dead weight is equal to the lift, the upthrust. On the left, you have this sort of definitive diagram. Row one inside, row note outside. The Upthrust is the volume times the difference of densities, and downward we have the weight, which is the same. So we can deduce expressions for the weight in terms of the volume, or the metric units, just to confuse you further. And if we start with the submarine there, we've got air inside with a density of 1.226 kilograms a cubic meter, water outside 1,026. So the weight is 1,025 pounds of volume. Uh, this means, for instance, that uh, 
if you've got a submarine which could represent something 150 metres long, 10 metres diameter, you've got a weight, an available weight of 12,000 tonnes. Which is just as well because you've got to have a shell heavy enough to resist the very large external pressure. Now, the airborne equivalent of a submarine is not a balloon as we know it, but the so-called vacuum balloon, where the inside is exhausted, so again the outer shell has to resist a very large inward pressure. So you've got zero density inside, 1.226 outside, and if you wanted to make a vacuum balloon of the same size as the submarine we talked about, then it would have to weigh no more than 10 tonnes, against the 12,000 for the submarine. And this is what really prevents us from doing it. Uh, the idea has been proposed many times, uh, but even with the most modern materials and techniques, I don't think you could make a vessel capable of carrying a vacuum and sustaining atmospheric pressure outside and still light enough to float in air. And if you did, the payload would be so small that there's really no point in doing it, when we can do it so much more easily by the conventional gas balloon, which you have on the top, a hydrogen-filled one in the middle there, density of hydrogen, 0.085 kilograms cubic meter, and this gives you uh, an available weight of 1.14 times the volume, which is very close to the 1.23 you get for a total vacuum. So if you could get a total vacuum, you're not really gaining all that much. Um, helium is 1.06, uh, because helium is slightly more dense than hydrogen. Um, hot air at the top, at 100 degrees centigrade, uh, you can get 0.28 kilograms per cubic meter of the contained volume. Um, 100 is about the highest practical temperature you can use. If you could get up to 200, you could get 0.48, which is still a long way below the efficiency of the normal gases. Um, now, just to complete the set, so to speak, I've shown down here the French bathyscaphe, because this is the only system I know of which is a true underwater analogy of a gas balloon. Here, instead of having a very heavy shell sustaining out of pressure like a submarine, you have a thin-walled shell containing petrol, which is virtually incompressible, um, so that the pressure difference across the shell is small. And this is just the same as the hydrogen balloon containing hydrogen in order to reduce the pressure differential. Um, it's used for carrying deep-sea diving spheres, and with petrol, about 700 kilograms a cubic meter, it gives you 326 kilograms per unit of volume. Well, let's forget about these underwater things, or it's crashing the pan anyway, and the vacuum balloon, although in passing we might have a look at Delana's idea for this in 1670, which used four exhausted copper spheres. They'd have had to be about two thousand thick to sustain even their own weight, and he realised that there was something wrong with it, but he wasn't quite sure what. Now, we said that there's a formula for the lift of a gas bag, volume times the difference in densities. Um, well, we get in a bit of a quandary when we try and work out exactly how this force is applied to the container. 
this picture shows a sealed, weightless dust bag, um, partially inflated and completely flexible. Now, you have gas inside, which is less dense than the atmosphere, and the atmosphere outside. And the blue graph on the right here represents a graph of pressure. This line up here is the atmospheric pressure outside. Now you see the pressure decreases as you go up, and the rate at which the pressure decreases is proportional to the density. So if you accept that at this level here, the internal and external pressures are the same, then when you rise above this level, the pressure falls off more rapidly outside than it does inside, because the density of the gas inside is smaller. So by the time you get to the top of the bag, you've got a pressure differential, a slightly higher pressure inside than outside. And if you take this triangle as representing the differential, and you wrap it around the inside of the container, then you can see that the resultant effect will be firstly to produce a lift, which you can show is equal to your volume times the difference in densities, and secondly, to provide enough pressure to keep the bag in shape. This pressure difference is very small. If you have a hydrogen balloon 30 meters high, then the pressure difference at the top is 34 kilograms a square meter, or about 1 twentieth of a pound a square inch. But this is nevertheless sufficient to keep a, a gas balloon in shape uh, in static conditions. Now suppose we take this gadget and we take it up through the atmosphere and see what happens to it. Uh, starting at the bottom here, the blue sweep again represents atmospheric pressure and the curves grafted on the outside represent the change of internal pressure for simply the same diagram repeated again and again at different altitudes. Now as we go up, atmospheric density decreases, so the pressure gradient decreases, the line becomes more nearly vertical, and the same thing happens inside, the internal density decreases, so the sharp end of these triangles gets sharper, that's not too technical, um, but at the same time, the gas bag expands because of the decreasing outside pressure, so the depth here becomes greater. So you find that the pressure at the top of the triangle doesn't alter a great deal, and in fact it adjusts itself so that the lift remains constant. Provided that the temperature inside and outside remains the same, then the lift of this flexible gas bag will be exactly the same from sea level right up to the so-called pressure height, at which it is unable to expand anymore. If the gas bag is forced beyond this height, then there will be no occasion for it to expand further, and the gas inside will not be able to expand, it will therefore escape. So you will have to vent gas to rise above the pressure height. And if you then come down again, having lost gas, then when you are back to your former pressure height, the gas bag will be partially collapsed.
and the lift will be less than it was in this case. What you've done in effect is push up your pressure height by venting gas. Now, if you look at the characteristics of helium in a gas bag, uh, I'm assuming that the helium is contaminated with 5% air, partly for the realistic and partly because it gives us a very nice round figure of 1 kilogram per cubic meter for the lift of helium at sea level. Here is the pressure height, and that represents the height to which you can lift this figure here, kilograms per cubic meter. So if you had a gas bag with a nominal volume, an expanded volume of say 1,000 cubic meters, then you could lift 0.8 times 1,000, that's 800 kilograms, 0.8 of a ton, up to this height. If you want to go higher, you've got to start off with less gas in, so that you have more room to expand up to your pressure height. So 700 kilograms you could take up to here. This is in the international standard atmosphere. Um, so, for example, for 0.8 you get up to 2,200 meters. For 0.7 you get to 3,600. Now, we had a sort of a cycle on the diagram before. If we start out with an inflation fraction at sea level of 0.8 and shoot it up to 2,200 and then force it up to this height here and then take it down to sea level again, we will find, first of all, that the inflation fraction has dropped from 0.8 to 0.7 and we've lost 0.1 of our nominal volume of gas and second, the lift has decreased from 800 to 700 kilograms. But the essential thing, I think, is that the lift does remain constant from sea level to the pressure height. Now, temperature effects are obviously important. There are two kinds of temperature effects. There are temperature differential effects, that is, things which produce a difference in temperature between the inside and the outside. And for a normal gas balloon or gas airship, uh, these are usually caused by superheat or supercooling. Uh, superheat if you fly in hot sun for a short period. Supercooling if you then fly through a damp cloud or something. Um, you change the lift by something between 0.4 and 0.5 percent for every degree centigrade of temperature difference between the inside and the outside. Uh, but I don't want to dwell on that. It's usually a temporary effect which you trim out, flying nose up or nose down. The rather more important thing is climatic temperature effects. Um, there is a saying that you lose lift as the temperature rises. Uh, this is not entirely true. It's a sort of a half truth, which I think needs a bit more explanation. Here's the same graph as we had before, pressure height against the lift per unit nominal volume, V0 is volume to sea level. Uh, the three lines here all represent inflation factors of 0.7 at sea level. When the atmosphere is cold, uh, this is the ISA curve which we had before, if we drop the temperature by 30 degrees centigrade, 
then we can take the same lift to a higher, to a greater pressure height. If we increase the temperature, we can take the same lift to a lower pressure height. And what this means is that a rise in temperature brings down your pressure height. So if you start, for example, in ISA, with the inflation fraction of 0.7, then your pressure height will be 3,700 meters. And if you then fly towards a tropical climate, keeping the internal and external temperatures the same, you'll find that by the time the temperature has gone up by 30 degrees centigrade, your pressure height will have come down to 3,100, that is, it's taken 600 meters off. But your lift will be exactly the same, provided you remain below the pressure height. The only effect is that you may have to drop your altitude towards the end of the trip as your atmospheric temperature increases. So it's not exactly true to say, quite simply, that you lose lift as temperature rises. If, of course, you set up with an inflation fraction of 0.9, then you would have an initial pressure height of 1,000 meters, and you'd have to fly underground to get to the uh, journey at plus 30 degrees centigrade. Well, let's just have a quick look at the standard types of balloon. This sketch shows typical sizes for two-man balloons. On the left is a hot air balloon. Hot air, as we've seen, is rather inefficient as a lifting agent. It only gives you about a quarter of the lift of helium, a differential of 100 degrees centigrade. Uh, you control the altitude up and down by turning the flame of the propane burner on and off. A noisy business. Um, its real disadvantage, apart from the big size you need, is that there's no residual lift. When the fire goes out, you come down, and if you're a long way up and the fire goes out, you come down to spin you rapidly. Um, the gas balloon, um, the gas balloons that are flying now, they're not going left use hydrogen for cheapness, and the control there is by dropping ballast to go up, or by releasing air from the gas, releasing, releasing hydrogen from the gas valve to come down. They are much more, uh, I would say, safe, but you can fly with much less uneasiness, because you have a constant reservoir of lift. It's plenty of time to think about what you're doing. Uh, common factors in both of them are a trail rope. For low altitude work, they drag this heavy rope along the ground, so it automatically controls the height of the thing. When it rises, it lifts a bigger weight of the rope, and that pulls it down again, and so on. Uh, and they both have a rip panel for rapid release of hot air or gas when you come down, so the thing doesn't drag. Of course, it's the presence of the rip panel which makes you use hydrogen rather than helium, because generally you lose the whole of your gas at the end of each journey. The first balloon ever was a hot air balloon, Gulf here of 1783. That's a modern hot air balloon, exactly the same principle. See the burner there, huge flame roaring up into the mouth there. We needn't say very much more about hot air balloons. It isn't really applicable to airships, although one hot air airship has been made, and I think another is proposed. This is the Cameron one which flew last year. I think more as an experiment, as a serious attempt at transportation. And here are some 
gas balloons at Mirren and Hernies Overland waiting across the Alps. Uh, you can see here, incidentally, that these gas bags are only partially inflated because they have to go to a very considerable pressure height to get over the mountains. The tendency for them to go flat on the bottom, as we showed on the first sketch of the partially inflated gas cell. And they're only prevented from going flat by the anti-parachute lines which pull down the mouth. Uh, it's called anti-parachute because otherwise a high rate of descent might cause the bottom to cave in upwards and create enough pressure to blow gas out through the uh, pressure valve, through the safety valve, and then you end up with a parachute instead of a balloon. So you have to hold the mouth down just to prevent that from turning itself inside out. Well, so much for balloons. Let's go on now then to the question of dirigibility. That is, steering a balloon where you want it instead of having to go with the wind. The first airships were called dirigible balloons, abbreviated to dirigible, and the word is often still used for airships now. The direct propulsion of a spherical balloon is difficult, firstly because of the high drag, secondly because of certain difficulties in steering a thing, which I shall mention again shortly, and thirdly because this very low differential pressure, which you get just by the difference of pressure gradients, will not withstand any sort of sideways motion. I think we just fold it flat if you try to push it sideways through the air. In fact, they often uh, cave in in any kind of turbulence. It's a change in shape as I fly over. So, very early on in the history of the airship, we went to the airship shape, which has been described in various ways, double ellipsoidal or cigar-shaped, whatever you like. Um, I'm just going to call it the airship shape, meaning the traditional airship shape, and you'll see that practically all airships built are quite closer to this general form. These are all pressure airships, non-rigid and semi-rigid. Here's a bunch of rigid airships, all following very closely the same basic form. So when I say airship shape, this is the shape I mean. It also carries a rather pleasing implication that anything that's not this shape is no right to be called an airship. Now, starting with this question of drag, steering and control on the airship shape, we'll look first of all at the bare hole without any fins or attachments. If we look at what happens in axial flight, see where the drag comes from. We look what happens in inclined flight, it's at an angle to the airstream. We see what happens when we stick fins on, talk a little bit about control. If we begin talking about drag, first of all, we've got a bare hole with nothing else stuck on it. Uh, it's moving along its own axis quite steadily, and the drag which you get has two sources. First of all, the so-called form drag, which arises from the pressure distribution of the outside skin. And secondly, there's the skin friction drag, due to various carriers on in the boundary layer. I'm going to talk about these two as though they were separable. In fact, they are not. But we have to simplify it so we can get some sort of a picture of what's going on. Now, here's our airship shape in absolute flight. This shows the pressure distribution on the outer skin. The red bit is uh, inward pressure, 
elevators out of pressure, uh, so you see that you get this out of pressure or suction over most of the length. Uh, when you integrate this distribution, at the front you've got a force pushing the nose in, and then the green bit represents the suction over the conical bit pulling it forward and so on. So all this lot added up would give you the net drag. Now there are three curves here which only really differ towards the back end. The broken curve at the top, which I call ideal, refers to the analytical curve which you get on the basis of the so-called ideal fluid. Now this is a kind of fluid which doesn't exist, it has no mass, no viscosity, and is incompressible, so it's not much good to us, but uh, it is used in analysis to give you a theoretical idea of what the flow would be like for this type of fluid. And it's simply used because you can analyze it, you can predict quite closely how this ideal fluid would surround the body of this type. And you can see, in fact, that it comes very close to the real fluid behavior over most of the length of the ship. The endearing characteristic of the ideal fluid is that nothing in it has any drag. The forces here would exactly balance out and you get no drag and no thrust either. Since you also get no lift from aeroplanes and no life on Earth, you needn't worry about the lack of ideal fluid too much. This curve here represents what you get if you tested a model in a wind tunnel. And you see that this is a bit disastrous because you don't get this positive pressure of the conical back end. So there's a reduced forward thrust from, the, thrust from this part, which you see is trying to squeeze the airship forward like an orange pit. And therefore you get a considerable fork drag uh, from the model. And what's happening in fact is that on a model, the flow tends to break away here, and instead of climbing up here and gaining pressure, it cuts off here at constant pressure, and the effect is the same as though the model was supported on a long tube, sticking out from the back here, and this gives you a considerable form drag. Now the full-scale one is somewhere between the two. The flow does not detach, and you simply get a very small sort of tube effect at the back where the boundary layer is sliding off and forming a small tube of the plate. Now, I've dwelt on this somewhat because the difference between model and full-scale tests represents one of the biggest problems in airship aerodynamics. In full-scale, the form drag, because of this close adherence to the ideal fluid flow, is extremely small compared with skin friction. So let's look now at skin friction effects. And here we have the dreaded boundary layer. This is the skin of the airship. And this is the air flowing over it. Adjacent to the skin, there is a very thin layer of air which sticks to it and moves along with it. And then as you move away, the velocity of the air over the skin gradually increases until at a certain distance it's equal to the free string velocity and the layer of air within which this change of velocity occurs is called the boundary layer. There are various technical definitions of it, but this is simple enough. The top diagram represents what we call lamin flow, 
where the layers of air flow over each other without mingling, rather like sheets of paper. So the flow within the layer is completely parallel right through the boundary layer from the skin down to the blue streak. And the blue diagram there shows the way in which the velocity changes from the skin to the free streak. The other kind of boundary layer is a turbulent one in which these paper layers get mixed up and scrunched together form a mass of very small eddies so you've no longer got flow in one different direction and the mean flow profile then looks like this. Now you can see that the velocity next to the skin is changing much more rapidly with turbulent flow than it is in laminar flow. And the effect of this is to give you a much higher so-called skin friction in turbulent flow and in laminar flow because what you're doing is shearing these air layers and the greater the rate at which you have to shear them, the more force it takes to do it. So a high velocity gradient gives you high drag, a low velocity gradient gives you low. Now down here we've got a clever diagram. This is the drag divided, skin friction drag divided by the surface area. And this is the length of the airship, plot in the log scale, otherwise it'd be over there somewhere. Uh, we're talking about constant velocity and constant uh, air density. So these are the only things which are varying. And we see here with a laminar boundary layer, we get a much lower drag the turbulent one, as I said up there. Now, a model will usually give you laminar flow. If you want it to be turbulent, you have to artificially roughen it or put tripwires around the nose in order to deliberately make it turbulent. Whereas a full-scale airship is almost entirely turbulent by the time you've got 10 or 15 feet from the nose, it's gone from laminar to turbulent flow, so you're inescapably on the top curve. The snag with laminar flow is that you get this early separation, which I showed on the previous diagram, which gives you the high form drag. Here, the drag is falling with the length, because the longer your airship gets, the thicker the boundary layer becomes. It's very thin at the nose, it's thicker and thicker towards the tail. And so the vertical scale of this profile here gets bigger and bigger. And although the change of velocity is the same, it's spread over a thicker layer, so the gradient of the surface is smaller, so you get less skin friction. So both these curves are poor. Also, of course, as your boundary layer gets thicker, it's less sensitive to roughness. And by the time you've got a couple of hundred feet back on a big airship, you can pretty well grow grass on the skin. It wouldn't make any difference. A lot of people say that there ought to be some form of boundary layer control so you could come down from this curve to this one. You can control the boundary layer, that is, you can keep it laminar by sucking air off through thousands of little holes all over the skin or by injecting air into the boundary layer from the inside. And in this way, you can reduce the skin friction very considerably. But if you're going to try and do this on an airship 800,000 feet long, then the weight of your ducting, your double skin, uh, your, all your pipe and your carrier air away, 
the weight of the plant to drive the thing, the cost, the research to do it, and the energy which you consume in pumping this air through these little holes are really going to make the whole thing a little bit ridiculous. They're going to make such inroads on your payload that I don't feel that it's a realistic uh, situation. I'm talking here specifically about boundary layer control to reduce drug over the whole skin. There are other schemes which talk about controlling the boundary layer locally at the stern to give increased propulsive efficiency, but that's another matter. Uh, when you read about boundary layer control, you have to try and distinguish whether they're talking about propulsive efficiency or skin friction. Here is a slide of model of the R8 in the wind tunnel. And here you can see the separation, the flow visualization, separating about here. Uh, in the 1920s, people thought that this was a disastrous thing. Uh, they thought that the same thing must happen on the full-scale airship, and they went to endless pains to try and develop a very sophisticated profile which would delay separation as far as possible, uh, particularly on the R101, which is very fine, uh, long equation for the curve around the back end. In fact, there's no evidence that full-scale airships show any significant separation, even when they are as short and fat as the ZMC2 here, which is only 2.6 times as long as it is diameter. Well now, let's look at inclined flight, where we're pitching the thing at an angle to the airstream. So you know there's two ways we can have your flight, that is where it's turned sideways in horizontal flight, or we can have pitched flight where we turn the nose up or down um, while keeping the vertical path constant. And here we might have another look at the difference between a sphere and an airship shape. In both cases, we're trying to make the thing turn a corner. At the top, F is the aerodynamic force, and T is the thrust. Somehow we have managed to turn the sphere so that the thrust is in this direction, but the aerodynamic force is still just the air resistance, which acts in the opposite sense to the way the sphere is going and can't act in any other direction. So the only sideways component you've got to try and change the path of the sphere is this resultant R here. But when you do the same thing with an airship shape, you find that as soon as you have turned the body, you get an enormous lateral aerodynamic force, F, uh, analogous with the lift of a wing, and the resultant of F and T then gives you this large force, so you can turn it much more readily into a fairly tight curve. I'm ignoring here the turning moment which also comes into effect in an airship body and which we now need to look at in a bit more detail. The top picture here looks rather like my son when it's time to get up in the morning, but it's uh, intended to show the airflow going round the airship, which is yawed through this angle here to the direction of the airflow. And the air comes in at an angle and it has to pass over the airship in a spiral path and ends up in two very large vortices which then wind away downstream uh, rotating in opposite senses. And these vortices absorb a lot of energy and account for the 
very high drug ownership uh, in, in flight. This gives you a pressure distribution. Uh, the red, again, is inward pressure, the yellow is outward. So you've got a large suction uh, on the far side of the nose, compression underneath, and a reversal at the back end. So the lateral loading acting along the axis is like this. A very big force pushing the nose further away with increasing the angle of inclination. And another force at the back end having the opposite effect so that the lateral force F0 is a difference between these. And there's a big turning moment M0 which is the sum of these two effects. So although you're getting a large lateral force, which is very nice, you're also getting a very large moment tending to turn the thing broadside on to the air stream. So the airship form is inherently unstable, extremely unstable. If you want to do anything about it, you have to put on a fin here, so that when it's tilted to the air stream, the fin produces a force R like this, this increases the lateral force, which is okay when you're maneuvering, but can be an embarrassment when you're talking about a gust response, and it decreases the moment. The moment becomes M0 minus R times this long down here. And you can please yourself whether you make the fin big enough to neutralize M0 completely, whether you make the fin smaller, which is called underfinning, so it doesn't quite neutralize M0, or whether you make it so big that you get weathercock stability and the thing flies back into its original path as soon as it's been disturbed. Now, a condition of yaw, such as I've drawn here, is usually only a transient one in practice. You get it when you fly into a lateral gust, and you get something like it when you're turning the airship in a circular path. If the airship moves into a lateral gust and its response depends on what sort of fin you've got. If it's got large fins, um, here it is flying along and I've represented the lateral gust by a sudden and permanent change in wind direction. If it's got large fins then gradually it will weathercock into the new direction of the wind. If it has small fins insufficient to overcome the aerodynamic moment it will gradually turn broadside onto the wind. And of course, if you have movable fins or elevators, so you can control it to please yourself, then you can bring it very quickly into line with the wind without having to wait for it to wander right up like here. But this is really talking about control and rather anticipating what I want to talk about later. These are very approximate. The actual path the airship takes will depend upon its inertia aerodynamic characteristics and a number of other things which I haven't thought fit to introduce at this stage. Now, turning flight is a rather curious phenomenon. Here's an airship going in a curved path, so the airflow over the air should be like this. Um, airships are big things, so the radius of turn is comparable with the length of the airship. It may be three or four times as great, but it's certainly about a hundred times as great as it is with an aeroplane. 
And this means that the direction of airflow at the nose is different to what it is at the tail. The angle of inclination of the nose is much less than it is by the time you get to the fin. In a straight path, in your flight, you would have the yellow curve here. In a curved path, because of the change in the angle of inclination, the curve is modified like this. And you get a very much bigger force on the fin in the curved path than you would in a straight path. Now, when the airship is over fins, got a big fin, then it's always trying to get back into straight flight regardless. When it's underfinned, you have a rather curious effect because the tighter the turn you're trying to put it into, the more powerful the fin becomes. So an airship which is underfinned in straight flight becomes overfinned if you turn beyond a certain radius. And the effect of this is that if an airship is flying straight and the fin is central, there's no rudder effect. And if it is underfinned, it will wander off to one side. And if it's left to itself, it will wander into a curve of fixed radius. And it will go round and round in this curve until you do something about it. The more underfinned it is, the tighter the radius of the curve will be. If you want to turn more tightly, you've got to apply a rudder as shown here. If you want to straighten it out, you've got to apply opposite rudder. So an underfinned airship will tend to fly in a circle of fixed radius. Now, when we talk about pitch flight with a nose up or down, then you've got the same effects as in your flight, but you've got the additional problem of weight and thrust. Because very often the thrust line, could we focus up please? Very often the, right, thank you. Very often the thrust line is below the axis of the airship. Firstly to give you access to the engine, second to keep the center of gravity low. So the thrust is trying to push the nose up all the time. But forgetting that for the moment, the other thing is the effect of the weight. You've got a center of buoyancy up here where the lift is acting, and down here you've got the center of gravity, and the distance between them is analogous with the metacentric height that you have in the ship. And it gives you a sort of a pendulum effect. The bigger this height is, then the more the airship resists being tilted from its equilibrium position. Now, in early ships, this was made use of to give you pendulum stability and also control. If you wanted the ship to go up, you had no horizontal fins or elevators. You would move the weight back. And if the airship was stationary, the center of gravity would be below the center of buoyancy, and you'd be sitting there with the nose up. You then apply power, and two things happen. First of all, the thrust tends to push the nose up still further, and secondly, the aerodynamic pitching moment, M0, with no fin to take to reduce it, will also tend to push the nose up, and if you're not careful, you get the nose up a hell of a lot further than you intended. And this happened occasionally to Santos Dumont, who used a system on his airships, and he reached some quite amazing angles, from like 45 degrees on some of his trips over Paris. Um, he records these with some astonishment and pride that doesn't seem to 
realize what caused it. When you start off with your nose down, of course, the opposite thing occurs. The thrust is now opposing the uh, aerodynamic moment. But again, if the thrust is too high, you're liable to swing the thing forward and get the nose up, swim, or that's the other way, and the thing will not come down. And that we can tell a tale which we'll come to in a moment. Well, the next step, obviously, this is okay for a low-powered airship, but when you're talking about high thrusts and high speeds and therefore high moments, you need to cut this M0 down to size, which you do by... Oh, sorry, this is Santos-Dumont airship. Uh, he had these little weights which he trundled backwards and forwards to get his control of pitch. And the first Zeppelin LZ-1 had a similar system, a 300 kilogram weight suspended on a cable could be rounded from either end to shift the center of gravity backwards and forwards. No horizontal fins at all. They had an interesting time when the cable broke on, I think, the second flight. Right, so now we've got horizontal fins on uh, to reduce M0, and without talking too much about that, the obvious development of that is to put control surfaces or elevators on the horizontal fins so you have complete control of the attitude of the airship. Um, you get some curious effects here because it was customary to make the airships underfinned in both horizontal and vertical modes. Firstly because it made them more maneuverable and secondly because it reduced structural weight and structural loading in gusts or sudden manoeuvres. In other words, they're deliberately making the things unstable, and this seems rather an odd thing to do. But in fact, the response of the bigger ships to any disturbance was so slow that it was no problem to a helmsman to hold the thing straight. You didn't really notice the slight undulation of path that you had. Now, we saw that the thing went into a circle, horizontal plane. In a vertical plane, it does something rather more complex. If you're flying along axially and the nose gets tilted up for some reason, then the moment M0, which you remember has a residual effect for some of the fins, will try and lift the nose further. And it will lift it until the weight here um, produces a pendulum moment trying to pull it back again and the two balance out. And the airship left to itself will then have a fixed angle of incidence and it will climb. If to take a rather ridiculous case there are no metacentric heights, the sense of gravity with the central buoyancy, it will go into a loop of constant radius. Fortunately, we won't in that sort of situation. So the effect of underfinning in a horizontal mode is to produce a steady rate of climb, or, if the nose is initially displaced downwards, a steady rate of descent. It gives you a rather odd effect if you're flying along and the airship suddenly becomes heavy, so flying through a cloud, supercooling, something like that, because if it's initially in a horizontal position, it starts to sink, so its motion is nose up relative to the airstream, and the nose lifts. And if it's going fast enough, the nose-up will be sufficient to produce more lift 
and the weight discrepancy, and it will climb. So an airship which becomes heavy will begin to climb spontaneously. And this is something that you have to correct either by slowing down, or by shifting weight, or by putting on a fixed elevator angle. Another curiosity is that of elevator reversal. Um, when you want the airship to climb, you produce up elevator, you turn the elevator up, it produces a downward force on the tail. And this then tilts the airship, direction as shown here, in order to produce a lift force F0. But you can only tilt the airship as far as the weight will let you. And if you're flying very slowly, then the downward force on the elevator will not be sufficient to produce enough incidence to produce a bigger lift than the original downward force. And to your horror, the airship will then sink steadily when you're trying to make it climb. And you then have to use down elevators to make it grass. At higher speeds, the elevator is more effective, you can get the nose further up, and you can readily overbalance the elevator effect with the lift. It is one of these things which occur particularly on the small blimps maneuvering at low speeds. Well, that's enough technology for a bit. Let's look at some pictures, some typical tail surface configurations. Um, this is a bit of an oddball. It's a Lebode replica. It was built for the film Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Flown by Anthony Smith and his gang, uh, they found they couldn't get it down. Uh, you've got everything against you here. You've got a low thrust line. Um, all you've got in the way of control are these elevators, no horizontal fins, and they would get the thing up in the air, and then as soon as they put power on, the low thrust line will bring the nose up you'd get a nose at the moment, tending to move the nose even further, and it wouldn't go fast enough for the elevators to counteract it. So no matter how hard they tried, every time they put power on, the thing climbed. And after repeated attempts, they still have to, still have to valve off helium to get it down again. Uh, they even tried jacking the whole system four feet forward, because uh, of moving the weight on the earth, the airships, but they still couldn't get the thing down. They only flew two or three times for the filming, in the end, they got rid of it in disgust. Not sure the kind of complication you can get with this low thrust line. This is a big French semi-rigid Dupuis de Lone, uh, 1912, I think. And here you see a very elaborate tail configuration. These horizontal surfaces are fixed. The lower one is hinged, so that's your elevator, and two large rudders sides. And then you have additional wings here, purpose of which is not particularly clear. Here's an ingenious gadget, V de Paris. Here they have fixed fins which are inflated to avoid the weight of fin structure, and then separate rudder and tail surfaces, elevators on the frame itself. Here's LZ3, third Zeppelin, it's a bit of everything. Uh, fixed biplane fins, massive rudders wedged in between here, and elevators at both ends. They have elevators near the stern, 
and another set up here near the nose. They are operating at very low speeds, very low altitudes, and I imagine they began to get trouble with this control reversal which I talked about, so they had to fit elevators forward in order to be able to lift the nose directly instead of having to wait for the airship to get its nose up and lift dynamically. This forward and aft elevator system was used on a lot of the early Zeppelins. I think all the daylight ships used it right up to the time of the First War. And we've already seen the ZNC-2, here it is again, where they move the control surfaces forward because at large angles of attack, they got a weird sort of a helical flow around this tail end, and they never knew what would happen when it filled surface that was in it. So they kept them well forward where the airflow was still reasonably predictable. Now, on the cruciform tail, which we came to regard as standard, there was never a lot of agreement on the question of aerodynamic balance. By aerodynamic balance, I mean shaping the tail surface or mounting it in such a way that you've got some kind of aerodynamic moment which was helping you to turn so as to reduce the helmsman's effort. Um, a lot of surfaces were left unbalanced, even on very large ships, so you had to work really hard to get some deflection when the airship was moving fast. The main object of this was to make it uh, impracticable for the helmsman to overload the airship by inadvertently putting too much rudder on at once. If we look at Zeppelin practice, the earliest ones had uh, kind of balance. But, uh, you can't see it very well here, but there is a bridge here, and the hinge line is about here, instead of being just at the front of the surface. So the front of the rudder comes out one way when the back end goes the other, and this produces a turning moment which helps you to turn the rudder out straight. But later, Zeppelins had completely unbalanced surfaces. There's the Bodensee, Graf Zeppelin, and Hindenburg, hinged at the leading edge, and the helmsman just had to move them by manual effort cables. Early British ships coupled Zeppelin practice. Here's the R33, and the R34 is the same. Here you can see these bridges and the hinge line about here. So you did have balanced surfaces. Later on, they couldn't make the mind of whether to do it or not. The R101 had surfaces balanced by horns, projections forward of the hinge line, and the air acting on these forward horns produced a moment again, helping you to turn the rudder and the elevator out of the stream. The R100 had both. The rudders were unbalanced, but the elevators were balanced, they had a projection like the R101. I think they felt it was more important to be able to move the horizontal surfaces quickly, in case of gust alleviation and move close to the ground, than it was to turn quickly in the rudders. Uh, probably the most elaborate form of balance is seen on the make here. Sorry, that's the R100 control car. Completely manual operation of these huge control surfaces in these Mississippi ferry boat style wheels. This is the rudder, this is the elevator man standing sideways. 
is a lichen. It has what look like auxiliary wings here and here, mounted on outriggers on the rudders and elevators, and they produced separate aerodynamic moments, again, helping you to turn the surfaces. So, what I've said so far applies to any kind of airships of an airship shape. So let's go on and look at some airship categories now. See the different forms they took. I'll start up there with a balloon, the top left-hand corner. We go to an airship shape. The first problem is that unless we do something about the pressure, the dead weight of the payload that they put on there will cause it to jackknife because the pressure is just something that's stabilized. Now, there are three ways around this which represent the three lines of airship development. First of all, you can simply increase the pressure to give you a non-rigid pressure airship. Originally, the load was hung underneath directly from the envelope. In modern times, of course, it's tucked against the envelope. The second way of getting around this problem was to try and distribute the load along the bottom skin uh, as evenly as possible. Early attempts used a fan suspension like this, but of course the end cables produced an axial uh, compressive force in the bottom skin, and these used to collapse sideways, because jackknifing up and down used to bend sharply at right angles. This helped with the Sanctus Dumont second airship. Unfortunately, I haven't got a slide off. Um, to move away from that, we first of all have an articulated keel, which I haven't got a picture of in here, but I'll show you in a moment. Uh, and the other idea was to use a long, rigid frame here, suspended continuously from the envelope. So you still have a distributed suspension, but now all the loads are vertical, so you're not producing compression in the skin as you were here. And later, the semi-rigid, it was called, had the keel taken up to the envelope and fared into it uh, in the style used by the Italians and the later French. And the other solution, of course, is to house the gas in a rigid structure, internal gas bugs, giving you the rigid airship. So let's have a quick look at some effects here. First of all, to show you that this is not a purely academic consideration. Here's a coastal airship, very nicely jackknife, used a lot of pressure. That's 16. Now we're going all technical again. Um, here's your pressure airship, uh, non-rigid, and this graph shows the pressure, the wall thickness, and the skin weight, which you need to stop it jackknifing under dead weight for given ratios of length to diameter. And they're expressed as ratio to W0, T0, and P0, and that's for a spherical balloon. And what's obvious here is that as you make the thing longer and thinner, then the weight goes up pretty sharply. So you want to keep the uh, <coughs> non-rigid reasonably short and fat. One of the longest ones I've come across is the French Chalet Merdon Type T in 1916. Very sophisticated thing, very nicely streamlined car here. 
but a length down a ratio of about 7 to 1, extremely high. ZMC2, the other extreme, was 2.6. Normally, you had something about 4 to 1, and then you found that the stabilizing pressure you needed was about 5 pounds a square foot. Now, that's just the pressure to stop it folding up when you have the load on. In addition to that, you have dynamic pressure when the thing is going through the air, and this five pounds a square foot, you find acts on the nose here when you've got a speed of about uh, 70 kilometers an hour, 45 miles an hour. And if you double the speed, then you have four times the pressure, you have 20 pounds a square foot on here, at this point here. So if you've only got five pounds inside, the nose is going to cave in. Well, rather than pressurize the whole hole to this high pressure, which only acts at one point on the nose, you keep it at your five pounds a square foot, and you uh, reinforce the nose with buttons. You see here on the Europa, light alloy tubes coming around from the nose, so that you can keep your overall pressure low, and consequently the skin. Here's cross-sections for a typical non-rigid. Um, because the pressure is low, the thing will try and go pear-shaped. And to prevent this, we have what we call catenary curtains, that is, curtains of suspension cables coming down here from the top onto the low. Uh, the other thing you see here is the pair of ballonets, air balloons, which we use to control the pressure. If we're talking about a differential of five pounds a square foot, we've got to keep that five regardless as the airship goes up and down. We're no longer open to atmosphere. We can no longer have half of it dropping loose as it could with a, a balloon. The thing has got to be sealed and it's got to be kept at the five pounds. Now the way it's done is to feed air into these flexible air balloons at the required differential of five pounds. And normally this is done by simply connecting them to an air scoop, picking up the slipstream behind the propeller and the stagnation pressure is sufficient to give you the stabilizing pressure. Um, as your altitude increases, then the air ballonase collapse, and your pressure height is reached when they are completely flat, there's no air in the top. And as you come down, they blow up again. You can also, by valving air to one or the other, shift the center of buoyancy backward here or forward here, to give you some pitching trim control. Though the um, system is a little bit too slow to use it for actual maneuvering. Here's a 1916-0 showing you the air scoop. And here's Europa, still using the old air scoops, print propellers and pinscoops, which you can see up there. And here's the inside of a, a Goodyear K ship about 1940, showing these catenary curtains with the suspension cable. There's a diminishing return on payload of size for non-rigid airship, and the biggest one ever built was a ZPG-3W, quarter 3,000 cubic meters, half million cubic feet, of 1958. Uh, sort of size you see around now, the Europa, the Goodyear ships in America, and the German WDO ship here, is about 6,000 cubic meters, 200,000. Uh, we're talking now about semi-rigids, and you remember the case we had with the pan suspension, 
uh, rippling the bottom skin. One solution to this, used on a lot of early Italian ships, was this articulated keel. The idea of which is simply to carry the compression in the bottom skin and then hang your hand suspension underneath. Quite a lot of small Italian airships were built like this during the First World War. Unfortunately, I haven't come across any photographs. Uh, the alternative was the suspended keel, used on a number of early French airships. Uh, here's Santos Dumont's number five. Here's this great long keel, suspended by a great forest of drug producing lines from the hull. Uh, they were rather keen on this idea at the time because they felt that the slim hull gave you less drug than a fat one, something easy to make, and also because their whole materials were not what they have now, and they didn't want to have to use too high a pressure. The Italians took up the suspended keel system and refined it to the integral keel quite early on. This is the city of Milan of 1911. Of course, the Norge of 1926 had the same system. This was very tricky from a stressing point of view because in a lateral gust or when the airship was turning, the uh, flexible hull on the top was trying to go banana shape and the rigid keel on the bottom was trying to keep it straight. But because it was to one side of it, as far as the gust was concerned, you got a very big twisting effect on the flexible hull with high stress concentration because you see the pipe take out by this wavy This did militate against building really big ridges, uh, center ridges, and the biggest one was the Roma of 1921, which was about a million cubic feet. Uh, the French went on with semi ridges, and I think one of the last ones they built would be this Zodiac uh, naval scout ship of 1931. Very sophisticated thing, very shape. You see in the background this beautiful concrete airship hangar at all the airport. I think it's there now. It's really not certain whether a semi-rigid is any good in modern terms. Um, this curve is for the non-rigid, where you have advantages in disposable lift of all other types, up to a certain volume. Then the long curve is the rigid, which comes into its own in very large sizes. And at the times when airships are being built, you could place a category here for semi-rigids, marginally better than either non-rigids or rigids, at the limited range. But in terms of modern design, these curves uh, are going to be shifted about so much that you might have difficulty in making any case for the semi-rigid design at all. Well, let's go on at last then to the rigid airship. Uh, the problem here is structural weight, as with any airship, because you have an extremely diffuse structure. There are no big load concentrations where you can put big cut members and take all the load out. And you find that, although theoretically you could calculate cross sections and so on, if you try to follow these sections, you'd be using sections which are so thin that you couldn't form them, handle them, or join them. The smaller the airship is, the bigger this problem becomes, and you're having to take things off the shelf and use the thinnest materials available 
rather than stressing the thing formally. And of course the percentage which you lose in fastening, riveting, coating, welding, and so on, becomes very much higher as the size of the whole thing gets smaller. So there is a lower size limit of which the rigid airship is a bit of a waste of time. The traditional ships, the more successful ones, range from about uh, three quarters of a million up to seven million cubic feet. Nowadays, of course, we're talking about very big ones. Well, what we've got here is an outer shell comprising longitudinal girders, uh, intermediate frames here, passing over the gas bags, forming more or less square panels which are wire braced, and the whole thing is covered with fabric. Between the gas bags you have transverse frames, which were mainly wire braced, some of them were stiff rings as we shall see, and in the bays so produced were the gas bags, which were of linen, sometimes rubberized, sometimes proofed by layers of gold beater skin. Um, they were supported by netting, stretched between the longitudinals internally, and they had gas valves, which were of two types. First of all, you had a valve for deliberate venting of gas, and you wanted to change the weight. And secondly, you had a safety valve, which blew off when you came to pressure. In earlier ships, the venting valve would be near the top, where you had plenty of pressure to push the gas out quickly when you opened it, while the safety valve would be near the bottom, and it would open as soon as any pressure at all became detectable there. But I think the later Zeppelins used the same valve for both functions, and had it somewhere in the middle. For control, we had cruciform tail, which we've already talked about, Propulsion was always by petrol, uh, always by propeller, mainly with petrol engines. I know of only two ships with diesels, it was the R101 and the, um, and the Graf Serpent II with also diesels. Um, in the early ones, the engines were in gondolas under the centre line and the propellers were driven by outriggers. Later on, you had these separate engine cars with accommodation for engine crew in the car so they could work on the propeller, on the engine and propeller. The accommodation control is in an external car, so you can see where you're going, but living accommodation for passengers and crew in the later ships was always inside the main hull. Now let's look in a bit more detail at the design problem we've got here. Here's one of the bays, and to start with I've taken two transverse frames and just the longitudinal members, and I've applied a shearing load so that the bays at the sides, these blue ones, get deformed like this. Well, obviously the top row is impracticable. There's no resistance to deformation there at all. The whole thing will just fold up. Um, your first attempt might be to wire brace diagonally like this. But if you do, you find that a relatively small shearing force pushing this end down produces an extremely high tension in this wire, which, because of the geometry of the system, produces correspondingly high compression in these members, which allow them to buckle out sideways unless you make them very heavy and stiff. You've got a better chance if you can reduce the angle of your wire bracing to about 45 degrees, 
But if you do it like that, then when you apply shear, the tension in these wires draws the rules together. The thing goes shaped like an hourglass like this, so you know better off. And the eventual solution is to divide the bay into roughly square panels, each with cross bracing at 45 degrees. And these vertical members then form the so-called intermediate frames, which run around between the main transverse frames. These wires I've shown here as though the second wire goes slack and load on. In fact, it's worth your while to pre-tension, that is to have them good and tight to start with, because this stiffens the whole structure. In other words, it means that a given load produces a much smaller deflection. Uh, suppose, for example, in the sheared condition, this wire here has to take 20 tons, then if it's not tight initially, it's got to stretch far enough to develop 20 tons. But if it's pre-tensioned with 10 tons in each, then instead of going from 0 to 20, it's only got to go from 10 to 20, so you only get half the deformation of the overall structure. And you find that this makes no difference to the loading in the outside members, it's just that they're, again, they're halfway to their design load all the time. Um, this also prevents you getting loose wires, and you get this banging when you suddenly reverse the load, and a slack wire goes tight, it prevents some chafing adjacent gas blocks. So all the wires tend to be pretension to some suitable fraction of the design load. Um, here's some early Zeppelin designs. They started off with a structural keel along the bottom, although it was a rigid airship, intended to carry most of the shearing load. Um, the panels then had no intermediate frames, and they had this diagonal bracing which I showed at the beginning, which has a dire effect upon the longitudinals when any real shear develops. And they soon saw the folly of that. They found that the, the, the keel here was only taking 5 or 6% of the shearing load, and the rest of it was being carried by the poor old shearing wire. So they did away with the keel and made the hull itself into the main structural feet. So here you have these intermediate frames and the cross-bracing shear bracing here. And there was usually some intermediate bracing to help stiffen the outer cover. Other loads, well, you get a bit of torsion, which again produces panel shear, but you don't get much torsion to additional form of airship. You get bending due to the suspended loads, due to the tail loads of maneuvering, and this puts these longitudinal girders into compression tension. You get the gas pressure trying to barrel the thing, so that is bending the longitudinal members and also putting the uh, intermediate frames into tension. And you get aerodynamic pressure, which was seen again is mainly outwards, so that also is trying to have a barreling effect. Now, when you examine all the loading cases you can put on an airship, you find that most of the members in the structure, at some time or other, go into compression. This means you have to design for compression, because compression design is much more tricky that tensile design. A member that will make, take 50 tons in tension may take only 2 tons in compression if you don't design it correctly. And I just want to go into a little detail here on the design of compression members because I think it's rather important in the context of modern design exercises as well as the old ones. 
Um, to make a member, a long member, effective in compression, you've got to get the material as far from the axis as possible. In highfalutin terms, you want the highest possible second moment of area. So the most effective type of member is a cube, thin wall cube. Um, and I've shown here some characteristics of a tube. I've assumed that we've got a tube of keeping a constant weight over a constant length, but we're increasing the diameter and decreasing the wall thickness. And we'll see what terrible things happen to it here. One mode of failure is by elastic buckling, which the whole thing springs out sideways. And the buckling load necessary to do that is represented by this curve up here. So you can't go into the yellow region. When you get a high diameter and a very small wall thickness, that you're liable to get local buckling in which the wall first of all dimples and then concertinas. And the load necessary to do that is represented by this curve down here. So you can't go into the red or brown region either. So you're already having to work within this peak here. There's a minimum practicable wall thickness which you can join, rivet, weld, form, whatever, uh, about here. And where that crosses the wall thickness gives you a vertical ordinate here, and you can't go into the blue region. So your optimum buckling load is about here, and this gives you a certain specified cheap diameter. If you want to carry a bigger load, you've got to use a bigger thickness, or shorten the length, or do something fancy like that. But the essential thing here is that the load which will be necessary to cause actual compressive failure of the material is way up at the top of the scale. <coughs> if you've got a material with a compressive strength of 100 tons a square inch, you might still only be able to use five of them if you have to design it in a long tubular compression member like this. And the relevance to modern design is that people say rather a lot about being able to do things with modern materials. What you want here is not a high strength material, but a high modulus material, or a high stiffness, high value against modulus. And although such materials exist, they're usually things like carbon fiber, uh, titanium carbide, beryllium nitride, things like that, which are only just coming on the market at prohibitive price and will not be available for major structural use for a great many years. So you're still stuck with this problem, and you're still stuck, I think, with light tolerance. Now, in the old days, they didn't have large diameter tubes in walls, so they had to build up their own tubes. You had either square boxes or triangular ones, with most of the material in the corners, as far from the axis as possible, and joined by webs which would be either built up from short members, or made from pressings with lightning holes pumped down. And one or two examples here to finish off with. Here's the axial walkway of the Graf Zeppelin. Uh, these are built up girders, all meticulously riveted together. You couldn't well light alloys in those days, but that is very well now. Graf Zeppelin again, so the keel walkway. Uh, the next slide should show one of the very sophisticated structural joints from the Akron, the big American ship, which used a large number of compression box girders with uh, light and webs. I think he was just loading the magazine in the second lock, he wouldn't be right. While we're waiting for that, I can 
say something about the idea of a monocoque shell. Uh, very popular nowadays. The problem, as I said, with the structural shell, whatever kind it is, is that it's relatively lightly loaded, very lightly loaded in comparison, say, with a civil engineering structure. And in order to bring the load up to a level where you can get a section with a reasonably high stress level, uh, you have to try and concentrate the load into discrete members. You have to divide it among longitudinal girders, transverse members, and so on. And if you're going to leave it as a diffuse loading and put it in a single skin, then you find that you're talking about a monocoque shell, uh, maybe two or three thousand thick. And to stabilize that in shear, that two or three thou has got to be split between two faces with a sandwich in between. And I've been doing this exercise on uh, one of the airflow designs, a small airship, comparing a traditional wire brace frame with a monocoque shell. Um, and it really isn't possible to design a monocoque shell down to the same weight as a light alloy wire brace frame. Um, so although there may be something in the monocoque shell for a very large airship, I think for the kind of sizes we're talking about nowadays, it's really a second or third generation exercise. Well, the final section we're going to be going on to is to say a little bit about the uh, transverse frames. Traditionally, were wire braced, but the problem you had here was that we're talking about a large diameter frame with wire bracing all in one plane. And although this did the job as far as normal flight days is concerned, it gave you a very considerable problem if one of these gas brakes collapsed. Because you had the pressure from one gas bag pressing on one side of the frame and no balancing pressure on this wire webbing from the other. Now, if you think of a very tight drum and you put your hand in it, then it only takes relatively small load from your hand to produce an extremely high radial tension around the edge. And in a transverse frame, this radial tension in the wiring produces a high compressive load all the way around the perimeter. And this load became the design case for the ring. So in fact, you have to design the transverse frames for the gas bag collapse case instead of for a flight level. And therefore, in the later ships, it became the practice to use a stiff open ring with no central bracing. Instead of the tight red across the middle, you had what was called a parachute suspension, very loose. Parachute netting, so that in the event of gas bag failure, the pressurized gas bag would bulge through the sector, and because it followed a considerable curve instead of a flat one that slightly distorted, the compressive load which you induced on the outer ring was relatively small. And as we get this thing going again, I'll show you these stiff rings on the R101, so fire base rings on the R100, uh, R34. Again, the stick on the well, we seem to have come to the middle of the series. That's the, uh, it's good if I didn't mention the frame. This is the R100 structure. Uh, you can see here the large triangular section girders. Um, the booms were light alloy tubing, and because this wasn't commercially available at the time, in 
may recall that Brown's Wallace made his own by taking long flat strips and winding them spirally, like a cow in a toilet roll, and riveting it along the lap to choose his continuous tube. The boom, these are this tubing that you make itself. Uh, this is the simplest type of transverse frame, it's radially braced. You can just see the wires and radial across the gas plug there in the nose, and having them tight media, otherwise they would be breaking quite surprised. And they go into the centre because we had, uh, like many of the airships, an axial wire running the full length of the hole from nose to tail through the centres of these transverse frames, just to stabilise the centre. Um, yeah, one of the problems of the R100 was that in his effort to overcome this weight problem by concentrating his loading into a small number of members, first to make stress analysis easier, secondly to get the stress level up to some useful value, he had a very high spacing between the longitudinals, in that 25 feet across here, and this meant that in certain conditions, particularly in flying flat out as he is here, We've got these waves in the traffic that uh, didn't really produce any particular bad effect, but it's a bit peculiar. Now, this is the R101 structure, and here is a stiff opening at the end here, no central bracing. Uh, this only gives you a weight advantage of a wire braced one when the diameter is large. In fact, I think the N405 and the R101 were conventional wire braced. Only the biggest ones have this open section. You'll also see here that they got over the traffic problem to an extent. These are the main longitudinals carrying the load, and these are looping girders, very light girders, which could be jacked in and out to adjust the skin tension. So this gives you a very much cleaner aerodynamic form than the Tower 100. Over 101, you see the traffic is good tight and it's well supported on the side. Also, they had air vents around here to give you a slight pressure differential. The inside pressure was slightly higher than the outside, and this again was to keep public tight, particularly over the nose area. One of the snags of having a small number of sides in the polygon, like the R100, was that in your flight and your turning, as the airflow wound easily over the airship, it would shed vortices from every corner of chambers. So you've got a whole mess of small vortices galloping back and forth, and it's going to be considerable drag intended to mess up the control circuits. Uh, here's the R34, and we've lost a bit of macro structure. Here are the intermediate frames on the side of the gas bag. They're about the same weight as the main frame, but they're just not wide breast. And in here we have, you can see across the face of it, not the radial bracing of the R100, but a rather complex crisscross, which I did have on the diagram, which we seem to have lost. Uh, finally, this is the Akron, one of the most sophisticated airship structures. Here is one of the smaller frames, which are the complex wire bracing. And here are the stiff main frames over the centre portions. And there were triangular walkways, Gunways here, here at the top, and uh, some of these frames had lifts running around the top, uh, at the top and bottom, so they had access in flight to all the main parts of the structure on the side. 
riding the lane of the street, I'm always wearing a brace. Question and answer session. You have to bear in mind that the R100 was designed for a very tight budget, whereas the R101 had a lot of research money available in terms of those days, and therefore the approaches to design were quite different. I would say that in terms of the technology of the time, the R101 was a far more advanced structure and certainly used far more elaborate analytical methods. Uh, for instance, they used a lot of steel tubing in the structure, welded stainless steel tubing, uh, which Ackleson Pollock did, probably contributed to its overweight to some extent. Whereas in the R100, Wallace had to go for the simplest possible structure. And one of the slides that we lost was an overall view of the R100 structure, of course, of preparation. And it looked nothing like the R101 at all. It was the simplest sort of first sketch of a structure you can imagine. Huge girders backwards and forwards, and more huge girders going around, and nothing in between. So I think you could say that the R101 was a more sophisticated one. As to which was the best, it depends how you measure quality. A very key, a very important factor here, I think, was the fact that the R100, in a very simple structure, came within, I think, about 6% of its weight estimate when it was completed, which is a remarkable thing for a structure of that size, would be even now. But he did this by keeping it simple. Whereas the R101, with its sophisticated structure and frequent changes in the course of design, I think went right over the top. In fact, no figure has ever been admitted for how far they went over on weight. But of course, they, oh, well done. They did have to put, they did have to put a lot of well, you'd have to put an additional bay on the R101 before it finally set off. So I say the R101 was a more advanced structure, but I think the R100 from the down-to-earth engineering point of view was probably a better one. But because they're working in such different atmospheres, I don't think you can make a direct comparison on any single basis. Because this is the R100, and you see the very crude appearance of these things. These are all, I forget how many gas bags they have, they're all identical in cross-section. He used one single title girder throughout for simplicity, which immediately meant that some of it was bound to be overweight because of the load distribution was the same. Triangular thing with tubular booms, and you see the thing is already divided by these main members into square panels. It didn't have the light intermediate frames. So the structure was, from a sophisticated point of view, overweight, but from an engineering view, it was a minimum cost structure and required a minimum amount of analysis. Since he didn't have money to spend on sophisticated analysis, this was one of the key factors in the design, and particularly one of the key factors in deciding to use only 16 longitudinal members. Um, well, we're not sure about the 101. Maybe the less said about it, the better. Certainly the 100 completed its flight across the Atlantic, but it would have needed to fly another 20 or 30 times before it could really be sure of it. It did lose the covering off a fin and lost one of its engines on the way back. I think they used
lot of Zeppelins built more airships than anybody else. Uh, almost all their airships were built before 1919. After that, they only built Odense, Nordstern, quite small ones, Graf Zeppelin, Hindenburg, Graf Zeppelin II. Uh, that's only three big airships. Uh, that meant that they didn't have a lot of money for research. So obviously they took a sensible decision to stick with the things they knew rather than uh, experiment. The really cool looking experiments were the R101. I'd like to say a lot more about the R101 because I think it's a greatly maligned airship, said it's the mountains. The most cool looking experiment, and the American Akron and Maker, who of course they had military money to spend. They probably represented the kind of airship we would have seen uh, more widely if airship development had continued. Well, we are thinking in terms of the Caroline Tiger skin sailboat kind of thing. But obviously we're looking for materials which will not creep like a slap, and also which are not subject to fatigue. But the two tend to be to some extent mutually exclusive, as we found looking around. But certainly we're thinking in very conventional lines of the textiles thing that far. We'll say we have looked at monocot shells, and we will look at them again when we get more information. But well, the first analysis, they don't look like a very good idea for the first generation ship, not a conventional ship. Uh, you're referring now, I think, to the fact that the Santos Dumont airship, for example, was pointed at both ends. Yeah. It's a genuine cigar shape. Um, it's hard to say. The very earliest airships seem to go immediately towards the cigar shape, and I think this was more probably by analogy with boat shapes rather than with any considered theory. Uh, I'm just trying to think which were symmetrical and which were not. I think it's quite true that they were the same shape at both ends up to about certainly 1900, even the Zeppelins. The early Zeppelins continued to be parallel right up to the First War, and their only concession to an airship shape was to round off the nose and uh, point the tail. They had probably discovered with pointed forward shapes that to get a clean entry, you've got to allow your forward stagnation point to wander around the nose cone. If you try and fix it by having a pointed nose, then at anything except a purely axial condition, you get vortices shed from this tip and the air strikes at the angle. So probably rounding the nose was an early experimental decision. And the tail was kept pointed in order to fix the rear stagnation point at that point, but again, later on, when Goodyear started making their blinks, we saw the ZMC2 had an almost a rounded tail. And the R100, in its later form, had a rounded tail. The um, conical tail collapsed because of the pressure recovery, and they stuck a sort of a boat shape on the back end that made no difference to try to As for the uh, traditional pear shape, which you saw with the R80 in the wind tunnel, which later became standard, I think this evolved as they became aware of the possibility of separation towards the rear. It started with the Zeppelin about 1917, 1918, with a large parallel section with a rounded nose and pointed tail, and gradually as the parallel section disappeared, you began to get more curvature towards the front and less towards the rear. But I wouldn't like to fix a particular date or a particular company or a particular experiment and say this is where they found out that the large radius of curvature towards the rear was more desirable. So 
can't really answer that in any detail. Well, the reason why you get a drop in pressure is due to the acceleration of the airflow. Uh, as it passes round the curve of the nose and back along the major shape. And ideal flow theory uh, shows that in fact the rather obvious thing which you're thinking that it will reach its you expect it to reach its highest speed as it comes under the parallel portion and keep that high speed towards the rear and then slow down again. But if you think about it, that means that uh, the highest speed, which corresponds to the lowest pressure, uh, must be reached before it comes to the parallel tip. Uh, at least the uh, speed corresponding to neutral pressure must be reached before it, before it comes to the parallel tip. Once it's on the parallel section, then it can't change its sign within the parallel length. It has to be where the profile is changing, and not where you've got a parallel section. I haven't thought about this in great detail for many years. I haven't come across any airships that were built using the fore and aft, except the Zeppelins, the early Zeppelins. Although forward surfaces have been proposed a number of times. Uh, on Ferris, for example, in his nuclear airship, proposing forward things. Although I never found out just why he was doing it. Uh, our forward fins are not fins in the strict sense of the term, they are controlled surfaces, as they're fully floating. And they are intended mainly to give you hovering control. Um, this was not such a problem with the old airships, because they weren't operating in the same category of work as we're trying to do with the airflow. They didn't have to hover in exactly one place continuously and they were small enough to be dragged around by a ground crew, charging definitely. So it's really a function of the job we're doing, rather than the, any overall improvement of aerodynamic efficiency. In fact, it makes it a devil of a job to control at any time when we're not hovering, let's face it, and it requires continuous control improvement of flight under the best condition. But that's something we've got to face. Well, this is rather a delicate question. Barnes um, Wallace, was very bitterly disappointed in what happened to the R100 because when the 101 crashed, the R100, which was a perfectly sound airship, was dismantled and sold for scrap, allegedly for about 450 pounds. Um, and I don't think he's ever got over it. I think this colours all his current attitude towards airships. And I think it would be rather unfair to examine too closely what the bank did is because of this. Quite disappointing as you must have felt. So I wouldn't like to say any more about it. Well, it's a matter of scale. It's a question of Reynolds' number, um, which in very simple terms, if you're testing a model and a full scale one, in ordinary air at ordinary pressures, then it means the length times velocity has got to be constant. You get the same airflow around them both. So if you're testing a 100 scale model, you've got to tested a hundred times the speed of the full-size one in order to get the representative flow picture. And obviously you can't do it meaningfully because in the wind tunnel you can start getting compressibility and up to five, six hundred miles an hour. So you can only test uh, for a full-size one at five or six miles an hour. If you can build a half-scale model, then you've got a factor of two. And this is probably pretty good as far as uh, axial flight and maybe steady turning is concerned. But where you're really in trouble is where you're talking about gust conditions. 
because a half-scale gust um, going to full scale gives you a far bigger change of conditions than a half-scale axial glide or turn going to full scale. Um, there's a lot of interesting work done on wind tunnel things before the war on things like this. I mean, axial flight, they could at least get some sort of idea of what's going on. But turning flight was very tricky. And they did all kinds of things. One thing they did was make a banana-shaped model and fly it in a straight wind tunnel to try and reproduce a straight airship in a vent airflow. Thing ever recall that. Another thing was to put it on the whirling arm and visit round. But again, you had to go at very high speed to get anything like a meaningful Reynolds number. And after its first circuit, it was in its own wake. So you can no longer get any sense out of that. Um, attempts have been made to reproduce lateral gusts by putting a wind tunnel, uh, actually moving the model along a track, and then a big hole in the floor and woofing air up through it. Uh, and although this can reproduce a gust, the big problem is measuring exactly what condition you've got. And even after that, you've still got to relate it to full-size practically Reynolds number. So it becomes extremely difficult to foresee gust effects or any transient effects on a full-sized airship 